Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, please, it is my honor to be able to read to you from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So if you have your Bibles, please turn there. I will be reading from the English Standard Version. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he abides. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? O God, O Lord, purify our hearts that they may be worthy to become your dwelling place. Let us never fail to find room for you, but come, abide in us that we may also abide in you. You who were born into the world before us, you who live and reign, you to who is, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, Lord, now and forevermore we give you praise and honor. Amen. Now, full disclosure time here. Um, it is not an exaggeration for me to state to you that these six verses that I just read have saved my life. No other portion of Scripture has impacted my life more tangibly, more practically, more profoundly than these six verses. These verses have haunted me. They've convicted me. They've humbled me. But they've also freed me. They've given me a love for others and a joy that is not my own. This, this Christ city is not an overstatement. Now, whether you're exploring Christianity, you're on the call by accident, or, or you're struggling with your faith this morning, whether you're stuck in this feedback loop of trying to like accomplish things to like check that, yeah, I've done that, I've done that, I've done that, and you're failing miserably. Maybe you're just putting up a veneer of spirituality, just pretending that everything is okay, but deep down you're broken and you feel like a fraud. My desire for you this morning, regardless of where you are at right now, regardless of where you have been, Oh, I, my desire for you is that this text would profoundly impact your life as it has mine. I, my desire for you is that you would be freed to walk in obedience like I have. So our outline is simple this morning. It's only two things: sin and the moral, or sin and the certainty of salvation, and number two, the moral test of obedience. So if we take a step back, kind of the thousand foot view here, and we look at 1 John as a whole, we see this letter that Jake introduced us to a couple weeks ago. We see here that John, the author, gives us two certainties that we can hang our faith on. The first, Jake dealt with uh, right out of the gate, was the certainty of Jesus and his incarnation. Jesus Christ, Son of God, pre-existent, God sends his Son, made flesh into the world. John, John says that he... He incarnated Jesus. He touched him. He taught with him. He, he, he was able to hear and listen to him. And in verse one, or in chapter one, rather, verse two, we read, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testified to it. Jake dealt with this certainty in the last two weeks. This week we come face to face with a different certainty. One in which that we will spend the rest of our time, 14, 15 weeks talking about. 
And it, and it revolves around an interesting question. And it's like, how can I know that Jesus can actually rescue me? How can I be certain that this Jesus, how can he literally free me from bondage? How can he help me with my divorce? How can he free me from my sin, my addictions? How can he deal with all the muck, the mire, and the things that stain my clothes so readily? How can Jesus actually deal with death itself? Now, knowing that this is a difficult issue, knowing that this is an acute question, uh, what I love is that John here changes his tone. And in chapter 2, we move from language that's us and we and them. He moves to personal language. It's almost as if he leans in, he looks us in the eye, and he says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. John, the man who walked with Jesus, the disciple who looked upon, who touched Jesus, the apostle who saw and heard Jesus speak, who saw him die and rise from the dead, this John proclaims to you and to me 2,000 years later, right to our very core, he says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And this is our cue to pay attention here. Oh, then, after he says this, he says something that is the most profound thing I have ever think that has ever been written. And he says, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. See, the effect of mankind's rebellion, described for us in the whole biblical narrative, is sin. Oh, let me tell you, it is a black hole that swallows whole galaxies. Not an over-exaggeration. And we don't even realize it. We're blind to it. Our rebellious, our narcissistic desire for power, our propensity to leisure and self-destruction leaves a wake of brokenness that follows us, and it's all-consuming. John acknowledges this present reality, this global effect of sin that has on it all, and Jesus Jesus is sufficient to deal with, with it all. That's what John says. Jesus is sufficient to deal with all of the consuming black hole of sin. In the light, where everything is exposed in tenderness, John meets us there. He looks us in the eyes, and he calls us to a purity that is not our own. He exhorts us. He exhorts us to set aside our sin while at the same time acknowledging that the lingering effects and the struggle with the sin and our behavioral inconsistencies of living to what we are called to. Let me repeat that. John exhorts us to set aside sin, while at the same time he acknowledges the lingering effects of our struggle and inconsistency in doing so. Jesus gives us a path forward, rather, sorry, John gives us a path forward through the alligator-infested swamp of sin, and that someone is Jesus, the righteous. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, but not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, in order to really appreciate and understand the force of John's certainty here, we need to look at a couple of phrases in this text. And allow me to nerd out a bit. The first one is the term advocate. Now, the Greek word here is called perikletos. And it's an ancient Greek word. It, it caps, encapsulates this idea of comforter. 
of intercessor, a helper, someone who has your back, a third party who acts on your behalf, someone who stands in the gap for another, actively seeking their welfare, even if they're guilty. In the best sense of the word, think of a lawyer in a law court. In other places in the New Testament, this Pedakletos word describes the Holy Spirit. In our text this morning, John says to us that we are in desperate need of divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness due to our sin. And due to our struggle with that, we are in need of a Pedakletos, an advocate, some priestly figure who stands in the gap in the presence of a holy God and, and brings our case to God himself. John says that this person, this person, this advocate, this Pedakletos is Jesus Christ, the righteous. Feel the weight of this. Feel it. Resurrected, ascended Jesus. Now, now if you have no idea what that, those terms mean, I invite you, flip through the Bible, go to the Gospel of John. You can find it there and read about Jesus' life and death, burial, and resurrection. Then you will have an understanding. Resurrected, ascended Jesus is in the presence of God himself right now interceding for us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, in order to grasp and understand John's certainty here, we need to look at the second word, and it's called propitiation. Now, this particular word in the New Testament is only used here and in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. But this concept is found throughout the entire biblical narrative. In the ancient world, um, it's, uh, it's described as a as a sacrifice or, or an appeasement to an angry and capricious God, a vindictive deity who is punishing his people. And this offer, this sacrifice is to, to placate his wrath, to, to alleviate the displeasure so that they can actually live. The sacrifices offered were usually blood, and they were offered in the hopes that this God deity would turn away from their wrath and would look favorably upon them again. Now, usually this was done for uh, fertility cults or for uh, grass, for growing you know, grain, etc. Human sacrifice, though, when it became, things became more dire, human sacrifice was needed. And propitiation, we see this in, um, in most of the ancient civilizations, from the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Mayan, the, the Aztecs. So, you know, if you want to watch an interesting movie about propitiation in the uh, Mayan world, uh, Apocalypto, Mel Gibson's 2006 film. So even whether you're looking at Germanic tribes or whether you're binge-watching Vikings on Netflix, this idea of propitiation, we understand it as a society, a culture, and globally. But to be clear, though, here in the Bible, sacrifice is a very, very different thing. God is not capricious. God is not fickle. God is not petty. And the sacrifices he instructs his people to do were never human. They were for the purpose of worship and for the purification of sin because God is a holy God. God is a God who is holy and the cycle of sacrifices kept the Israelites distinct and separate, undefiled, clean, holy, so they could enjoy his presence. The sacrifices weren't you know, reactive to ward off anger or to deal with punitive damages, but rather they were preventative. They sacrificed so they could worship God in his presence. So to summarize, outside of the biblical narrative, we've got propitiation dealing with appeasement of an angry God. But in the biblical narrative, 
Sacrifices are offered for purity, for atonement of sin, for forgiveness of sin. Hence, some translations uh, in our, if you read the different translations, use the, a term atoning sacrifice for this word propitiation. So when John says, my dear little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with a father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Instead of a broken people offering reactive sacrifices on our own behalf, on our merit, on our terms, trying somehow to appease an angry God into forgiving us. John says here that Jesus intercedes for us and he himself, he is holy, he is righteous, he becomes the sacrifice itself, the sacrifice to make us clean. So when God looks at us, he sees us as righteous, us as forgiven, us as clean because of Jesus. That is profound. In this text, John is saying that Jesus is at the same time the object and the subject of propitiation. In other words, he is both the priest mediating and the sacrifice itself. What makes this truly amazing, it's not sourced in our, in our like need or desire, but rather from God himself. Turn with me to the second use of this word in our text, to 1 John chapter 4, verses 10. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. In our selfishness, in our quest for power and our struggle with evil and sin, God sends his very own son to this broken world and he mediates a sacrifice. He dies the death that you and I should have had and he deals with our sin. He breaks the power of evil. Now, for a long time, I understood that. I got that. I get it. And I'm sure many of you are saying, yep, I get that. But what saved my life was the understanding, the assurance that I have that he is right now, right now in the presence of God, continually advocating on my behalf. I am not saved and stranded. I am not abandoned to struggle with sin. It is through Jesus that we can have the power to walk in freedom. Yet when we falter, because we do, Jesus, as advocate, helps us get back up. Because of him, we are made clean and we are stayed clean. May I remind you of 1 John 1.9 that, that Jake articulated last week. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This was true for John's readers, and it is also true for us today. Jesus is our advocate, and he is our propitiation, our atoning sacrifice. That is the assurance and the certainty of salvation that John talks about here. Now, permit me a story. Some of you may have heard this before, but it's powerful and compelling, so I will tell it again. I became friends with a man from Algeria when I lived in Greece. He was fleeing his country um, to make a better life for himself. So he gets himself to Turkey, gets a boat. Anyway, finds himself in Athens, and I meet him. And for two years, I got to know this man. He's devout. He's fervent Muslim. He would try to convert me to Islam, and I would try to convert him to Christianity. You know, a mutual tit for tat. So one day, over many, many cups of tea, late in the evening, I asked him this question. 
my friend, how do you get into paradise? How are you assured of that entry? How do you know that Allah will save you? Now, he gives me the standard answer. He says, well, I don't know for sure, Keith. But if I live a good Muslim life, if when I die I have done more good things than bad things, maybe, just maybe, Allah will have mercy on me and allow me to come in. Well, so I, I replied back, I'm like, so you're kidding me. You're, you're telling me it's more or less up to your effort and the whim of Allah. And as he starts to get angry and he starts to give a reply back, I ask him this question. Hey, dude, you've done bad things, right? He looks at me. Whoa, what do you mean, Heath? I'm like, dude, you have done bad things, stuff that you would not tell your mother, right? He kind of looks. Yeah. And I ask him. How do you deal with the guilt? How do you deal with the shame? And for a long moment, he paused. And he looks up, and he has a tear in his eye, and he says to me this, and I will never forget it. He says, I just live with it, Heath. I just live with it. You see, I tell him about Jesus and how God, when he looks at me, he doesn't see my guilt and my shame. He sees Jesus' holiness, his righteousness, and he forgives me based on the merit and the advocacy work of Jesus Christ, the righteous one. It's not on whim. It's on Jesus' qualifications, not mine. And I don't have to just live with the guilt and the shame because Jesus removes that from my life. My friend walked away and he said to me, man, I, I can't believe that because if I do, my family will kill me. So my friend lived with shame fearing for his life. And in the end, if he does not turn, he will lose his life and continually live in shame. See, this, this message of John here is life and death. It's serious. And this is where we come to point number two, the test of obedience. If you turn with me back to 1 John chapter 2, and we'll read through verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. In confronting directly the beliefs of these false teachers that Jake introduced us to, John says something very timely for us today. He says that if you know God, if you claim to have intimate knowledge of God, if you claim to be a, a spiritual person in this world, if you say that you're spiritual and want to have inner wellness, oh, if you say you are a Christian, your actions will show it. You will obey Jesus' commandments. Now, right now, probably some of you are bristling in your seats. I'm like, wait a minute, didn't we already deal with meritocracy stuff? See, Jesus, John rather goes on to later confirm what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22. So Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 through 40. Teacher, there's some people asking Jesus questions. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like this. 
You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We are to love God. We are to love God with our whole being. And from that, from that we love one another. You see, John, John, knowing this, he doubles down in verses 5 and 6 in our text this morning. In chapter 2, 5 and 6, he says, By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. If we are certain of our faith in Jesus, then John says our test of faith will be in our lifestyle of walking as Jesus walked, in obedience. If we say we know God, then this knowledge will bleed into our lifestyle, into our actions, into our very existence. Jesus will permeate everything we say and we do. We are to obey the words of Jesus and walk in the way he walked. If we don't, we are confronted by verse 4. Now, I've got a guy that I work with on the downtown east side, and he's got a bit of a prophetic bent, and he calls this verse 1 John 2 by 4 because it hits you in the back of the head. So, 1 John 2 by 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John is more or less confirming the saying, like, look, your actions have got to speak louder than your words. Now, this is hard for us to hear. This is super hard for us to hear, but it doesn't make it any less true. Now, some time ago, probably 20 years, I was working as an electrician. Now, I was joking around the boy with the boys in the locker, you know, in lunchtime, you know, locker room talk. And one of my coworkers, he says this to me. He asks me this question. He says, can I ask you something? I'm like, yeah, sure. Now, we all notice that you don't swear. And we, and we know that you're a Christian. But you've got the sickest and the dirtiest mind we've ever seen. How does that work? See, about that time, 1 John 2 by 4 hit me. Whoever says, I know him. Whoever says I know him and does not keep my commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. And that stung. My coworker's naive question, in that I was exposed as a fraud, as a liar. I was not walking in obedience. And not just in that area of my life, but in many areas of my life. My veneer of faith was evident and on display for everyone to see. See, the problem was, Christ City, is that I was loyal to and I loved myself, which is sin. I wanted to be loved. I wanted to be respected. I wanted to be liked by my coworkers more than I wanted to be loyal to and loved by Jesus. My coworkers' question was a sucker punch to my autonomy. And when I got home, I repented. I confessed my lack of love and my inability to obey, and I called up to Jesus, my advocate, asking him to petition God so that he could give me the strength to walk, to obey, to abide. I repented of my loyalty to self and relied on the advocacy of Jesus Christ to help me walk in loyalty to him. John says it here. If we call ourselves Christians, our actions will be marked by loyalty to Jesus rather than loyalty to ourselves. 
So I ask you a question. How are your interactions in your workplace? Are you living with a veneer of faith or are you walking in loyalty to Jesus? How are you at home with your kids? How are you when nobody else is around? You see, after that conversation, in the lunchroom of a sawmill, I repented. And my life actually was set on a different trajectory. Four years later, four years later when I left that job in that company, I was known as Dr. Phil. I began to walk in obedience and I became less and less known for the sick and depraved mind that I had, but more and more for my love for people. You see, I help people. I talk to people. I dealt with the sticky and the mire and the messy relationship, and I preached the gospel to them in those situations. I became known for love rather than a sick mind. Christ City, I recognize this is a difficult issue. And when we read this text in 1 John, we, we almost as if we take snapshots of our life at that time, and we evaluate our whole Christian certainty on that one particular snapshot. And we ask ourselves at that snapshot, I'm like, do I measure up? Do I measure up? Many of you are asking yourself, do I measure up? And when the answer is no, we define our obedience at that moment as absolute, without Jesus as an advocate. And as a result, we either give up We bury our head in the collective sand and we live culturally Christian lives. Or we jettison core beliefs to kind of make us feel better. We jettison beliefs to cover our shame and our inadequacy. Or we just try harder. We rely on sheer will and force of determination. We lean into the force of will and we obey and we obey and we obey. And we end up living our daily lives with regret because it's on our own merit. And you end up just like my Algerian friend. Both are wrong, and both are enslaving. See, we look at this text, and we treat our obedience as a static absolute. What we really need to do, what has freed me, is we need to take snapshot after snapshot after snapshot after snapshot, and continually looking to Jesus, our advocate. And when we flounder, because we do, And when we flounder, we can look back, and we can evaluate our lives, snapshot after snapshot, and point a trajectory to go, oh, Wow, in my failure here, in my failure here, God was faithful and I'm actually moving to a state of obedience rather than just static guilt. This is what it means to abide in Jesus. Now, Christ City, uh, I struggle with this reality today. Christmas Day. Christmas Day, a month ago, I got a phone call from a friend of mine and he was in distress And he asked, Heath, can you come help me? So after I opened my presents with my family, I begrudgingly drove to the downtown east side. And in my head, I'm complaining and whining and sniveling the whole way. You know, I don't get paid enough for this crap. Like, really? But when I opened the door and I saw the state of my friend, my heart melted. You see, I was convicted once again of my own selfishness and my desire for self-preservation, but I was overcome with love for my friend, and we dealt with his issue. Christ City, we all struggle with this, and you are fooling yourself if you think you're not. When I'm tempted in despair, 
in a certain specific snapshot of sin in my own life, when I'm suffocated by my duplicity of my loyalties, I remember the words here of 1 John, and they are whispered into my ear, Heath, Heath, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. But if, if you do, you have an advocate in that. His name is Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for your sins, Heath. But not only for yours, but for everyone. Everyone. You see, I don't have to walk away in guilt and shame, Christ City. My life's trajectory is one of obedience and abiding in Christ. And how do I know that? How do I know that for sure? Uh, verse 5. Verse 5 in our text. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Now, to be fair, I am far from perfect in this area. Believe me, you could ask Mariko. She could probably text chat you and you know, tell you stuff I've done this week that haven't been loving. But even so, God's love and my, my joy are being perfected day by day. Greater. It was greater this week than it was last week. It was greater this year than it was last year, and it increases decade by decade by decade. The lucky thing about being older is that you can recognize that. I am not the same crude-minded, depraved individual that I was in that sawmill 20 years ago. So as we close, I leave you with the words from the author of, of Hebrews, and he deals with this same reality and this same struggle. Hebrews chapter 12, if you have your Bibles, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I quote this a lot, and now you'll understand why. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's referring to chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run the race with endurance, the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh, Christ City, rely on the advocacy of Jesus. Take a snapshot of your life this morning and ask yourself, do my, do my actions portray more of a loyalty to myself or to Jesus? If you find yourself wanting this morning, I urge you, I urge you to look to Jesus, your advocate, the author, the perfecter, the propitiator of our faith who is seated with the very presence of God himself, the one who can help you run the race. And if you ask him, if you ask him, he will help you set aside those weights and those sins which cling so desperately to you. And he will cause you to be loyal to him rather than to yourself. Now, wherever you are this morning, whatever you're grappling with, whatever consequences you're dealing with in your daily life, oh, whether it be the absolute claims of Jesus or just, just straight up sin. Now, whether you've been a Christian for a while or not, whether you're struggling or not, know this morning that this text and the truths contained here will save your life. They've saved my life. So the question is, how do you respond? Let's pray. God, forgive us in the times when we feel alone and stranded and we forget to look to you as our advocate. When we think that we've got to work it out and clean up our own acts by our own merit and our own bootstraps. Lord, forgive us also the times when areas of our life we've covered up and we've, we've altered views of you and we've, we've said, yeah, that doesn't fit how I want to live and we've jettisoned those. So Lord, please 
please help us deal with both sides of this edge. Help us to walk the edge, looking to you, the author and perfecter of our faith. So in this I pray, give us strength. Amen.